and I have a very strong sense of like this personal sense of justice. Um, when I was growing up, I was notorious for making sure that everything around me um, was fair. Um, I was constantly if some, pointing out like, well, that's not fair if, you know, my brother got something that I didn't. And my mother was definitely notorious for her typical response of, well, you know what? Life isn't fair. Um, <laughs> and growing up, I still recognize that side of myself of just wanting to be even with everybody. Um, and I thank the Lord that he is working on that side of me um, and teaching me. Um, but that's really what I want to kind of talk about today is I don't know how many of you are like me in, that, in this regard of being competitive, wanting things to be fair, um, but we as a church have been challenged to live by really radical faith. We're believing God for this abundant life that the Bible clearly promises us, but there are times when we start to get anxious or we start to get worried because those very things that we're believing God for are happening in somebody else's life, but not in our own. And again, for somebody like me, I'm like, well, wait a second, hold the phone. Like, where's the fairness in that? And I have really come to this place where the Lord has really challenged me of whose standard am I allowing to drive my life? Is it the blessing in other people's lives or is it the voice of the Lord? And it is a struggle because we are supposed to live by radical faith. We are supposed to believe in all of the promises of God. But there is a delay and there is a waiting period. And sometimes what we do is we downplay those promises or we sugarcoat them and say, oh, well, maybe God meant this by what the scripture says. And we sugarcoat it because to try to protect ourselves from that frustration or that disappointment. But the reality is we are supposed to hold fast to those promises. But by doing that, we also have to protect our hearts. So that's what I'm going to talk about today is how do we deal with the disappointment when the other guy seems to win? or when the other guy seems to get blessed. And we're here, and we're just ra- waiting. And it's hard because I think it needs to be talked about in the church, especially in a church like ours that says, no, we're going to believe for the promises of God. But so many of us struggle with that waiting period of, well, how do I wait with patient faith when it seems everybody else around me is getting blessed, and I'm over here still waiting for that promise in my life. So let's open to Psalm 37, starting in verse 1. Um, a little bit of context about this psalm. Um, David was, uh, was the author of it, and he was an older man at this point. So he was kind of towards the end of his life. And we know that by later on um, in that psalm, in verse 25, he says, I have been young and now I'm old. So pretty clear, David was older when he wrote this psalm. Um, and David has spent a lifetime of having to live in the delay of the promise of God. Um, He knew from a young boy that he was anointed to be king, but there was many, many years where he had to wait. And you talk about the struggle of seeing the other guy win. David is living in a cave and Saul's in a palace. David, at many points in his life, chose to be honorable. He could have taken Saul's life, but didn't, walked away, and yet he still had to go back to the cave, and Saul still went back to the palace. So David understood this concept of having to wait for the promise of God, and not just wait, but seeing other people around him be blessed when he was like, when is it my turn? So he definitely knew what he was talking about. Um, The other thing about this psalm is it's very much structured into two parts, and I'm more going to focus on the first part today in verses 1 through 8, and that's where David really persuades us to live confidently and patiently. 
And then the remaining is where he really contrasts the lifestyle of the uh, Christ follower, the godly, versus the lifestyle of somebody who doesn't follow the Lord. Um, so let's go ahead, um, in starting in Psalm chapter 37, verse 1. It says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they, will, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Let me go ahead and pray, and then we're going to really dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you um, so much just for the opportunity to be able to study your word um, and just speak out of what you've been challenging me to in my life in this season. And Lord, I thank you, God, that your word rings true every time. God, I thank you that your word brings hope and it brings life. Lord, it literally lifts us up from a from a state of despair, Lord. And that's my prayer this morning, God, is that you would elevate us to a greater level of faith and a greater level of trust in you as we learn to deal with the in-between, the hard time that we don't always talk about, Lord, as we choose to live by radical faith. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so um, obviously from reading this psalm, really the context is about really remaining in patient faith when what you know, David calls the ungodly are being blessed. But I actually think that this can be applied to any time we allow somebody else's blessing, whether it's somebody who doesn't know the Lord or somebody that does know the Lord or even our own interpretations of our own lack keep us from waiting with patient faith. And to be honest, for me, it's harder when I see other Christ followers being blessed when I'm not seeing the fulfillment of the promise of God in my life. It's as if like, you know, growing up, you know, if another family, another kid got something that I'd really wanted, yeah, it'd be frustrating. But if my own brother got something that I wanted, then we had an issue. That's where I, you know, the anger, the competitive nature in me would rise up. And I think we don't talk about that in the church. We don't talk about the fact that like, what happens if my sister in Christ gets what she's been believing for? And I'm over here being like, wait, what about me? So I think this psalm and the lessons from it can be across the board. So the, there's three different points that I really want to really cover um, today from this psalm about how we wait or how we wait well. Um, and it really comes down to this principle of what we're choosing to focus on and what we're choosing to do in that period of delay. It's not, we're not just supposed to sit there and twiddle our thumbs. The Bible calls that a lot of times of being idle and it leads to a whole slew of other problems. So starting in verse 1, this is where we see the first really challenge that um, David gives us. He says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. He says, Don't fret and don't be envious. And again, I don't think it's just referring to people who don't know the Lord. I think it's any time we fret or we get envious of somebody else's blessing. 
the dictionary Webster, they define fret as to cause emotional strain, to be vexed or worried. It's the action of wearing away this agitation of the mind. It's literally this deep sense of worry that can oftentimes lead to anger, frustration, offense in our own heart. Because again, our eyes are focused on what everybody else, how everybody else is living or what God's doing in them. And it leaves us in this place of, well, wait, what about me? And I can't think of any better example in the Bible of this concept than Abraham and Sarah. Um, The promise that they were believing for was for a son. God promised Abraham, you're going to be the father of many, many descendants. Well, when God gave Abraham that promise, he was 75 years old. That in and of itself is is, is almost an an impossibility. But that promise did not come to fruition for a really, really long time. 25 years, to be exact. He was 75 when he received the promise. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. And I want to go take us through a few verses where it, what Abraham had to do in that in-between time, in that delay, where he really struggled, both him and Sarah, struggled with this first concept we see in the psalm of not fretting and not being envious. So um, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. And this particular passage is where we see um, Abraham actually receiving the promise from God. And it very clearly states how old he was um, when this takes place. I think that's going to come up on the screen too. So Genesis chapter 12 in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So here we see the promise of a son, promise of that descendant, first taking place. And Abraham was 75 years old. And again, we can already see some of that struggle of like, well, that's going to take quite a bit of faith for somebody who's 75 years old to be able to have a son. But it isn't until later where we really see that Abraham begins to fret and he begins to worry. So just skip down a few verses to verse uh, 10 in the same chapter of chapter 12. And this is when Abram and Sarah went to Egypt. It says, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your sister? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had you know we look at this verse and you know why did abraham lie because he was fearful it's because he was worried 
we begin to see this pattern in Abraham's life and Sarah's too of just fretting and worrying about whether or not God was going to come through, whether or not they were going to be okay, and he took it into his own hands. And because God was faithful to Abraham, they made it through that. I mean, very much could have, Pharaoh could have killed Abraham for telling that lie. I mean, it is definitely by the grace of God that Abraham made it through that. But it could have very much turned in the opposite direction because Abraham chose to worry and fret instead of trusting that God was going to fulfill what God said he was going to do. But that's not the only time in Abraham's life where we see this. Now we're going to move over a few chapters to Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And there's been some time that's passed here. We're not talking about like a year or two later. It's a good 10 years from this point, from when um, Abraham first received that promise in Haran to now. Um, In verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham, Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So Abram is at this point 85 years old. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. And now we see Sarai fretting and worrying and becoming angry. Allowing the blessing in somebody else's life to bring offense in her own. But that's not what God had promised And again, they took it in their own hands because they allowed that worry and that fretting about the promise of God to take over. And then if you skip over to Genesis chapter 17, um, at at this point, more time has passed. In verse 1, it says that Abram is 99 years old. So we are now 24 years after Abram first received his promise. There is still no Isaac. And we've already seen instances where Abram and Sarai both have fretted or been envious or been angry. Um, because of not seeing that promise fulfilled in their life. And in verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. God reaffirmed the promise that was spoken to him 24 years before. Why? Because Abram needed it. They had struggled to, to believe that promise, even to the point of taking it into their own hands. And then in verse 15 of the same chapter, it says, He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Oh, that was verse 13, sorry, 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of many nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, "Shall a child be born to a man who is one hundred years old, and shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child?" And we still see a little bit of that unbelief in Abraham's heart. But if you remember the rest of the story, Isaac is born. Abraham was hundred years old. Sarah was ninety years old, and Isaac was the one that grew up, became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of the 12 sons of Israel, and now we have the nation of Israel really starting out. Um, And God was faithful, regardless of Abraham's struggle to not, you know, to not remain in that place of patient faith, but to struggle with um, envious 
and jealousy and anger and even Sarai too. Sarai really struggled that to the point that Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham's son, had to leave. It caused such dissension in the home that there was actually a separation because she was jealous of the promise of God in their life. Um, so the reality is God, is all, God will still remain faithful. Even if in our time of waiting in that delay, we struggle with that, God still proves himself faithful. But it's really a matter of what is it going to be like for us in the delay? Are we going to be in this place of patient faith, expecting with hope the promises of God? Or are we going to have a journey like this? where we struggle with that and have to deal with the anger and the disappointment and all of those kinds of things. We cannot compare blessing by other people's standards because what it does is it robs us and it robs somebody else of their blessing. It will keep us from sharing somebody else's joy and blessing. I think of the prodigal son. You know, this son, this wayward son left because he wasn't happy at home, messed his life up, came back, the father was overjoyed through this big old party. And who was envious? Who was angry? Who was upset? The son who stayed in the house the whole time. To the point that he didn't even want to go in and celebrate because he was so angry because his brother had been blessed. And he had been blessed too. He just didn't see it. He was so focused on what was going on with somebody else that he could have missed this celebration, an incredible blessing, because he allowed the envy in his heart to rob him of that. How many times have we not been able to rejoice with somebody else's blessing because we've been offended because of our own lack? Because as Christians, that's not how we're supposed to live. We are to celebrate in the blessings of other people regardless of whether or not we've seen it in our own lives or if we're still waiting for God to come through because he will come through, but it is really hard to wait. Abraham had to wait 25 years. Comparison is a robber of joy. It's a robber of faith. It's exposing a lie that says God loves them more than me. Or it exposes a lie in our own heart that says God is more good to them than he is to me. And that's not what my Bible says. My Bible does not say that. But we can see where when we allow envy and jealousy and anger towards other people, comparison, where we can see it begin it opens a door. It opens a door for the enemy to lie to us about who God is. And if we're not careful, it can lead to division. Think of Rachel and Leah, ja uh, ja Jacob's wives. So much jealousy that it led to dissension among their sons because of that. We have got to be careful. We have to rejoice with others when they rejoice. And we need to mourn with others when they mourn and not allow what God is doing in somebody else's life to be our standard of why it's not happening in us. God's voice is our standard, and that's it. That's the end of the story. Because again, when we fret and when we're, when we're envious, think about, it doesn't change anything about God. God is still faithful. But think about what it does in you as you wait. I firmly believe that Abram and Sarah could have saved themselves a lot of trouble had they not been envious and they not been fretting. And again, God is so faithful. You know, Hebrews chapter 11, God commends Abraham for his faith, which is awesome regardless of his struggle. But we do need to be mindful. We need to wait with patient faith. I think of the parable of the workers in the, vine in the vineyard in Matthew 20. And in that whole um, parable, that's the parable where um, 
the, the owner of the vineyard, he sent people out to work for him, and he said, you know, I'm going to give you a denarius, I'm going to give you a day's wage. And then throughout the day, he kept hiring more people. Even up to the very last hour of the vineyard being open, he was still hiring people. And so when time comes to be paid, he does it in order of who was hired last and who was hired first. So you think about the people who were there working from the very beginning. They're seeing somebody who worked one hour getting a day's wage. So they're probably thinking, ah, oh, sweet. Like, I'm going to get hooked up. And it comes to them, and they get paid the very same amount that the workers who'd only worked for an hour did. And of course, they were really, really upset. They were envious. They were fretting. They were angry. And in verse 15, the, the worker of the vineyard, he calls them out. And I love what the English Standard Version says. He questions them, do you begrudge my generosity? God is so generous. And that's what the point of this psalm is. God is generous to all. Who are we to say, God, it's not fair because this person got this blessing and I've been waiting this long. God is faithful. And that's the end of the story. We don't need to ask the questions. We don't need to worry. Remember when they, when um, many years ago where I was struggling with just some fairness in my life, and I was taking a walk on the beach in Oregon, which is gorgeous. Um, it's one of my places where I literally can just shove everything away. And I was just asking God all these questions. Like, God, why this or why this? Or why didn't my life look like this person? Like, what did I do? Why did I get, this, get this, these cards handed to me? And I remember God very clearly said to me, you need to let the questions go. And just trust me. Trust in my faithfulness. And it was like the kick in the pants that I needed. I was like, okay, God. It is time for me to stop asking why, stop asking the questions, and just trust you. And in my journey of learning to do that, I have become a better friend because I've been able to rejoice with my friends when, they've, when they're rejoicing instead of allowing my own frustration and my own envious keep me from really celebrating with them. And it's made me a better daughter. It's made me a better sister. It's made me a better teacher because I've refused to allow envious and jealousy nullify who God is in my mind. It's not nullifying who he is, but it's my perception of him. That was the first really commandment that we see in Psalm 37 is don't fret. Don't, don't be envious, whether it's of somebody who doesn't know the Lord and is experiencing these incredible things in their life or somebody who does know the Lord and is experiencing the same thing or also when we just fret over our own sense um, of lack. So again, it tells us what we shouldn't do. And then the psalm goes on to say, okay, these are the some things we should do instead. And one of the things that he says um, in verse 3 of Psalm 37, if you want to flip back there. And this is one of my favorite things about this, this chapter. I love this phrase. The first part of verse 3, and David says, trust in the Lord and do good. So simple, but yet so profound. Do good. In other words, don't sit there idly. Don't sit there twiddling your thumbs, just waiting on God. Do something. Do good. Honor the Lord. Serve the Lord. Take advantage of the fact that you can serve the Lord and you can minister as we wait. And when I think of an example of scripture of somebody who had to wait a really, really long time for the promise of God and chose to do good in the process, I think of Joseph. What an incredible testimony of somebody who had to wait 20 plus years for a promise to be fulfilled. And nowhere do we see him complaining, becoming angry, screaming at God. 
If you read his story, what the Bible says over and over and over again is the good that he did as he waited. And if you read the story with that perspective, it is absolutely life-changing. So let's do that. Let's, let's run through the story of Joseph. Um, love, love this story. Um, so starting in chapter 37 of Genesis, um, again, this is where we see the promise first coming. Um, and Joseph was 17 years old when this took place. It says, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Again, we see the fruit of envy and the fruit of anger. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. That was one of two dreams that Joseph had. That was this promise of authority that Joseph was going to have in his life. Now we could talk about, you know, should Joseph have bragged to his brothers? Probably not a good idea. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that God promised Joseph something. He promised him something about his life, and Joseph needed to hang on to that promise. And again, he was 17 years old. And if you remember after that, his brothers were so envious of Joseph that at one point they were going to try to kill him. And then one of them had compassion, and they decided, well, let's sell him into slavery instead. So they did that. They sold him into slavery, and he became a servant of Potiphar. So if you want to jump um, a couple chapters over, we're going to pick up the story there, because everything in between there uh, talks about another character, another one of um, Joseph's brothers, Judah, and his story. Um, so we're just going to skip over to uh, chapter 39, uh, verses 1 through 5. And this is the, when Joseph is, again, a servant in Potiphar's house. He's in Egypt. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So we see Joseph honoring Potiphar. Honoring Potiphar, honoring God, and doing good to the point that later on it says that Potiphar didn't even know what was going on in his own house because Joseph handled it all. And Joseph was a slave. And again, we don't see Joseph in this part of the story being like, oh, why is this happening to me? I'm angry and I'm going to do the bare minimum because I'm frustrated with God because I haven't seen that promise fulfilled. No, we see Joseph going above and beyond to do good and honoring the Lord. And he was waiting for the promise when he did that. And talk about kicking guy when he's somewhat already down. Uh, the story obviously doesn't end there. And a few verses later, in, in verses 9 and 10, it really describes um, what happens with Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife um, liked Jacob. It does say that he was good-looking. 
Um, and so she, she attempted to lure him, lure him into temptation to sleep with her. And uh, again, in verse 9 through 10, we see Joseph, in light of a difficult situation, still choosing to do good. So in verses 9 through 10, um, there is no one greater. This is Joseph's response to her. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or be with her. It wasn't one time that he said no. It says day by day she came to him trying to tempt him, and he said no because he chose to do good. He honored God, and he honored his master Potiphar. And most of you know the rest of the story. She lies. (laughs) She claims that he does try to sleep with her, and Potiphar throws him in jail. Should have killed him for it. So again, we see the faithfulness of God in Joseph's life there. But now Joseph winds up in prison. And again, you think about it, it's like he just spent all these years choosing to do good, choosing to honor the Lord. And, you know, from the world standards, we look at that and say, well, that didn't work out for you very well. Let's try a different approach. But that's not what we see from Joseph's life. We don't see him giving up or losing heart or becoming faint. What we actually see him doing is the very same thing he did before. That wherever he found himself, he chose to do good. Instead of fretting, becoming envious, being angry. And when he's in prison, in verses 20 through 23, it talks about how he continues to do well. He continues to honor the Lord. Um, It says, Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph, Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. And again, we see Joseph doing good and being honored for that. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Joseph hasn't seen the fulfillment of his promise yet. He is starting to see some fruit, though, of this place of authority. Absolutely. But it's definitely not what was originally promised to him. And again, we don't see Joseph fretting. We don't see him becoming angry. We see him saying, okay, wherever I'm at, I'm going to do good. And I'm going to honor the Lord. And he was in prison for a while. And at one point, two of the king's servants come to, the, come to prison, a baker and the cupbearer for the pharaoh. They have dreams. Joseph interprets them. And they, he was dead on. He was right about his interpretations. And he tells the cupbearer, hey, when you get out of prison, can you remember me? Tell Pharaoh about me? You know, just throwing that out there. And of course, <laughs> the cupbearer gets out and forgets. So two years after that point, little glimmer of hope, two years later, finally, the cupbearer remembers Joseph when Pharaoh has a dream that needs to be interpreted, and Joseph comes out. Um, And then he interprets Pharaoh's dream, just giving you a a snapshot of the story. And uh, Pharaoh was so, um, not surprised, not the word I'm looking for. He was so pleased and so, so, and so, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but you get the idea. Like he was so overwhelmed, I'll put it that way, by Joseph's interpretation because none of his others, other advisors could do that, that he said, okay, Joseph, you're going to be my right-hand man. You're going to be in charge of making sure that nobody in here goes hungry. And this dream is about how for seven years, Egypt was going to be blessed. 
And then for seven years, there was going to be a famine and that he needed to prepare. So Joseph was placed in that position. So for seven years, he was given authority over Egypt, helped prepare, and then we head into the seven years of famine. And now we see the fulfillment of the promise of God. So to give you an idea of the timeline here, Joseph was 17 when he had the dream. Says that he was about 30 years old when he went before Pharaoh. So right now we're at, what, 13 years? But then there were seven years of plenty, which puts Joseph at 37. 20-year gap right now between the dream and after the seven-year blessing. And all we know is that sometime within that seven-year famine that the brothers came to Egypt. I don't know if it was the beginning. I don't know if it was the, the middle or the end. It doesn't matter. But all we know is it was at least 20 years since Joseph had had that dream when his brothers came to Egypt. And when they came to Egypt, they did bow down before him. And Joseph right then got the fulfillment of the promise of God. And you know what? He didn't seek retribution. He didn't seek revenge. He didn't even seem to be all that angry. He forgave them. And then welcomed them back into his house. And I think about that. I'm like, Joseph was in charge for seven plus years in Egypt. He would have had the fi- financially, he would have, if he wanted to, been able to go and seek retribution as soon as he was given his place of authority, as soon as he got out of Egypt. But he didn't. As soon as he got out of prison, he didn't. Why? Because he chose to do good. He understood what David talked about when he said, trust in the Lord and do good while we wait. We have no control over the delay period, but we can choose how we live in that delay. We can choose to honor the Lord and we can choose to serve God and do good. Or we can choose to sit there and be envious and be angry and do life our own way because we're frustrated at God. And here we see two people in scripture that have been commended for their faith and their life waiting 20 plus years for the fulfillment of the promise of God. And it's so interesting to me because I'm like, okay, how old am I? 29 years old. I'm like, the promises that I'm believing God for it hasn't been that, it has not been 20 plus years since I've been believing God for. And if these guys can do it and they understood some principles and we commend them for it, what makes us think that we can't wait longer than what we've already been doing? Um, and I'm always so impressed when I read the timelines because sometimes we don't focus on that. I think we talk about Abraham and we talk about Joseph and we don't sit down and say, no, this is how long these guys waited. And I don't know about you, but that gives me so much faith. Not faith to be like, God, really, am I going to have to wait 20 years? No. Maybe. But that's not what gives me the faith. What gives me the faith is saying, okay, these guys understood what it meant to live in the waiting period. And when God promises something, he doesn't give us a time frame. And again, who are we to say, God, it should be done in this way. It should be done in this manner. That's not our place. And God is so faithful. Charles Spurgeon Um, famous preacher says, there is joy in holy activity which drives away the rust of discontent. Because when we're idle, we become discontent. And that's where we get frustrated and that's where we get disappointed and that's where we get envious and that's where we begin to offend God. And we have to guard our heart from that. We have to guard our heart from becoming discontent. And how do we do that? By not being envious, by not fretting and doing good. And then the third point, it's actually the longest point, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, um, 
is David goes over and over again and gives these phrases that really challenge us in, our, in the cultivation of our relationship with God. And it is no surprise to me, he gives about eight commands in verses one through eight of how to live in the waiting. And the majority of those are about our relationship with God. And it is no surprise to me that David did that because David was a man after God's own heart. And he understood that it all comes back to that. Yes, we can do good. Yes, we can choose to not envious. But if we're not cultivating our relationship with God in the process, I don't know, I don't care how strong you are, we aren't going to remain faithful for 20, however many years, if we aren't focused on that relationship with God. And he gives a few phrases. One of my favorites is where he says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Love, love, love that phrase. And when I read that phrase, it says, dwell in the land. It's verse 3 of Psalm 37. In other words, it means set up camp, abide in the place of contentment that chooses to look at God and the things he's doing rather than what you think he's not doing. Don't camp out in negativity. Don't camp out in worry. Don't camp out in fretting. You camp out in feeding on his faithfulness. That's what I think he means by dwelling in the land. It doesn't mean we literally move to a new location. It means that what is the location of our hearts? Are you dwelling in faithfulness? Are you dwelling in trust? Or are you dwelling in negativity and frustration and offense? And it is a choice. And again, the only way we can do that is by feeding on his faithfulness. What a powerful phrase to feed on his faithfulness. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, I came across this the other day. Um, It's about John the Baptist. And I never saw this passage in light of this. But this took place when John the Baptist was in prison. Um, So in verse 1, I'll just read it really fast. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? This was John the Baptist. John the Baptist who prepared the way for the Lord, who knew it was Jesus when he walks up. Here we see him saying, Are you the one that we're waiting for? Are you the Messiah? What a difference, huh? Between when his ministry started and when he's in jail. Why? Because he was worried. Because he was frustrated. Because he was scared, which rightly so. He's in prison. And what I love about Jesus is this is what Jesus says. Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. He tells John the Baptist, hey, look at what I'm doing. Don't worry about what I'm not doing. Focus on what I am doing. And that is what I believe it means to feed on his faithfulness. Rather than look at your life and say, God, why aren't you doing this? Look at your life and saying, God, look at what you've done. In my life, that looks like, God, yeah, I'm still believing you for this area. And yes, some days it's really, really hard, but I'm still believing you for that. But rather than focus on that, it's me focusing and looking at saying something that I believed God for for a long time, and many of you stood in faith, for, faith with me, and I'm not going to cry, but I'm probably going to because I'm a weeper, um, is the reconciliation of my relationship with my own father. Some of you walked with me through that journey. And you know what? God is so faithful, and he's brought that to pass. And I can choose to live in that place of saying, God, why aren't you doing this? Or I could say, God, look at what you've done. Or another promise that I believe God for, and Jesse knows because we prayed about this for years, was this promise of God that said, you're going to take kids overseas. 
you know what? As of today, I've taken kids on four different missions trips. And again, I can look at that and say, God, why aren't you doing this? I'm offended and I'm angry about it. Or I could say, God, look at how faithful you've been. And that's what God challenged John the Baptist to. He said, don't worry about what you think I'm not doing right now. But look at what I am. The blind see. The lepers are healed. And then God, because he is so good. You keep reading. Um, it talks about how, um, where's the verse I'm looking for? Uh, verse 11, he says, I surely I say, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He affirms John the Baptist. In, the, in John's darkest hour, when he doubted, God not only redirected his focus, but then he honored him in front of other people. Which gives me such hope that when I have my bad days, it does not change who God is and how much he loves me. And other things in Psalm 37 that he challenges us to do, again, my favorite is to dwell in the land. I'm going to camp out in faith and feed on his faithfulness. He says, delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Here we see these four commandments that tell us to direct our focus on God, not on others. It's as if he's challenging us to be so close to the presence of God that there isn't any room for offense to break in. And if we don't do that, if we don't spend our time cultivating our relationship with God, it is incredibly difficult to not be envious or to not worry, especially living in America where the American mentality of um, materialism. We're surrounded by people having all this stuff. But if we don't remain so connected to God, it is so easy to let our heart be open to offense and it lets the enemy come in and steal and rob us, not only of our joy, but the joy in those around us who are being blessed. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. We have to guard our heart from offense. And we, we need to recognize that when we choose to live by radical faith, when we choose to believe God for abundance, the enemy is going to try to, to take a foothold by getting you to look at everybody else and get your eyes off God. And lie to us about what we believe is not happening in our lives. Faith requires a brand new perspective, but we must be mindful of how we wait. Don't downplay the promise of God in your life. God has promised us things, and he's challenging us. Hold fast to them. Do not sugarcoat them. Do not downplay them, but guard your heart while you wait. How are we waiting for God? Are we fretting? Are we comparing ourselves to others? Are we serving the Lord and honoring him in the position that we currently find ourselves in? Are we abiding so close to the Lord that our hearts are guarded from anything else? Because God is faithful and he will remain faithful. Hold fast to that, but be mindful of the delay. Be mindful of the waiting period. And that's what this psalm is all about. It's how to wait well and remain in patient faith. Um, I asked Dave if I could lead us in response um, this morning because in this season of my life as I'm choosing to live by patient faith and my prayer has been in this season of just saying, God, when that promise comes true for my life, I want to be able to say about myself that I was faithful in waiting. And if that means I have to wait 15 years, then I'm going to wait 15 years because I want to be faithful in waiting. 
But I also recognize that in order for me to do that, I need God. I need his presence. I need to meditate on his love. I need to feed on his faithfulness. And one of the songs that's been on my heart recently, it's just that simple chorus of, I need you. And the chorus goes, I need you, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, and I love that, because the defense to guard my heart is God. It's meditating on his promise. I'm a fool to think it's anything else. And then another hymn that I've been focusing on a lot is, It is well with my soul. No matter where I find myself, no matter what season, whether the pr- I'm living in the abundance of a promise or whether I'm waiting, I'm going to say it's well. And the reason I can say that is because God is my one defense. So I just felt like we needed to spend some time just in worship, um, just singing through these phrases, again, because when we delight ourselves in the Lord, when we spend time with God, we are putting a guard around our hearts and protecting us from the lies of the enemy. So I'm going to invite you to just participate that with me. Whatever the promise in your life is that you have been desperately seeking God for, God wants to challenge you today to remain faithful. He is still true to his promise. He is still true to his word. That does not change. But he is challenging us on how we wait. And he's calling us back to that intimacy with him that says, God, no room in my heart is there going to be for, def- for offense. No room in my, is there going to be in my heart for being envious of another person's blessing. No room in my, is there going to be in my heart for me just to sit and not honor you in the process. And it's calling us back to that commitment that says, God, no matter how long I wait, you are faithful and I'm going to be faithful.